Creed, looking at the Apostles' Creed, I just want to bring a couple things to your attention as a church, uh, some things that are going to be coming up here in the next few weeks. For the last seven weeks, we have been in a class entitled Step One, uh, bringing along people who, for them to be able to understand who we are as a church. And in this class entitled Step One, it has taken the place of our membership class here at the church. And for those who have gone through the class, for those that have joined together with us, they are going to have the opportunity next Sunday to formally join the church. And so we have three people um, who have made that commitment. So next Sunday, we will be bringing them in to formal membership here at the church. For those who are formal members of the church, we're going to be doing something a little bit different next Sunday when we bring in new members. I am going to be inviting you as existing members to also make a commitment that next Sunday, that you would renew that covenant that you have made before the church. At some point, we all made that commitment to join the church formally. And so the same commitment that I am asking of the people who are coming in as new members, those expectations, those high level of expectations that we place upon you as well. There are four expectations that we have of a member here at Newton Nazarene Church, that we would make gathering together a priority, that we would give of our finances, that we would give of our first fruits, that we would learn together through Bible studies, Sunday school, and small groups, and then finally, that we would serve, that we would recognize that every member of the body is important and that every member of the church should be a functioning Member, that if we are not all working together, then we are not going to be able to make the impact to have the influence here in the city of Newton that God is calling for us to have unless every single one of us is moving forward in unity to the call that He has placed upon individual lives and upon us as a corporate body. So, next Sunday, we're going to be bringing in those new members, and I'm going to be asking you as a church for those who are formal members. Um, for you to make that covenant again next Sunday. Don't want to surprise you, okay? So when I invite you to stand next week, I just want to let you know why we're going to be doing that. The following two weeks after that, on March 22nd and March 29th, we are going to be holding our annual elections as a church. We are going to be electing the new members of our church leadership team, our board, and those elections are for anybody who has formally joined the church, those three that are going to be joining next week, as well as those who are members of the church. And you will be able to cast your ballot for those people that are running for the board. We have a committee of people who have prayerfully selected names in order to be able to put them on the ballot. Next Sunday in your bulletin, there is going to be an insert, and that insert is going to have the ballot in it. I want you to have a week that you can look at that ballot, that you can be praying over that ballot, so that when you come in on the 22nd and you come in on the 29th, you have already covered that vote in prayer. We will be holding the elections on those two Sundays before and after service, like we've been doing for the last three years. You can go to this small room right over here, which is in the southwest entrance. There will be a sign above the door that says elections. If you're a member, you will come in, you will give them your name, they'll hand you a ballot, you will vote, and you will hand it back to them. 
Um, and you can do that before or after service on the 22nd or the 29th. The reason why we do it two Sundays is in case that you are unable to be here one of the Sundays, we still want you to be able to participate. So that's the reason why we're holding it over two Sundays. Then on April 5th, which is Palm Sunday, the first Sunday in April, we will be announcing the results of those elections. Okay? If you have any questions just about that, about membership, or if you have any questions about the elections that are going to be coming up, please come find me after church today. My contact info is also on the back of your bulletin, and you can reach me either by email or just calling here to the church office. Okay? For the last month, we have been in a series entitled The Creed. And we have been looking in this nine-week series that we started, uh, the Apostles' Creed, which really is just a set of beliefs that people of our faith, that we all hold on to these same ideals. In fact, when we look at the Apostles' Creed, if you haven't been able to join us for this time, essentially what it is, is Christianity 101. What are the basics of our faith? Because the Apostles' Creed is an essential tool that we can have in our tool belt that when somebody asks us, what do you believe, that you will know what it is. Not only to know what you believe, but also to know why you believe it. Not just because somebody has stood up here and preached it. Not because it was written on a piece of paper, but for you to be able to back up, to be able to show scripturally, this is why I believe because the Bible says this. That all of our beliefs as Christ followers must start with Scripture, must start with the way that God has chosen to speak to us. And then out of that, our system of beliefs, is that's where we derive it from. Too often we go backwards and we formulate and we put together, well, this is what I believe. And then we go to find verses that back up our stance and we'll just cherry pick them and we'll find one verse here and one verse there. And then that's when we see all of these differences in beliefs as Christians because of the fact that we are starting from the wrong viewpoint. We're starting with ourself rather than starting with God. During this series, I have invited for you to memorize the Apostles' Creed. I pray and ask um, that you have been doing so. And then also, each Sunday during this sermon series, we are confessing together as a church in reading the Apostles' Creed together. So I'm going to invite you at this time to please stand. And together, we are going to read the Apostles' Creed and to confess together what we believe. Rob, I'll go ahead and I'll do it, okay? We'll go back one slide, please. Okay, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. You're going to have to do it, Rob. We'll get there, folks. Go ahead. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God 
the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church of Jesus Christ, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. There have been times in my life, and I'm sure that there have been in yours as well, when you have been sitting in a group of people that you don't know very well. And if there's a leader of that group, if there's a facilitator of that group, what they might do in order to be able to start the conversation is they might go around the room and ask each person in that group to identify themselves, to share a little bit about themselves. What is your name? Tell me a little bit about your family. Where do you work? What are some hobbies that you may have? And so we do that. We gather together in these groups. We don't know each other, and we share those things. We go around, and then the goal is for us to hear and to learn a little bit about ourselves. And what I find is when, I find, when I'm in one of those situations that I try to sell myself, right? That we want people to think well of us. Same thing that we do on social media. We always post the good things that we want people to see about here are the good things that are going on in my life. In fact, if you find that person that's always posting negative things, that's why I'm so glad for that unfollow button, right? So you don't have to unfriend them, but you just don't have to watch all of their stuff. But we do so, and we share with these people, well, I work here, I like this thing, my family looks like this, I'm interested in these things. But one thing that I do during the middle of these times, and in fact, I I hope that you do too, is that we often don't share or air all of our dirty laundry during the first time that we have an introduction with a group of people. I hope that you don't do that in those initial uh, times that you meet with people. We would never say in the middle of a group that I was once arrested for this. Or, I am not a huge fan of my mother-in-law. My spouse has this disgusting habit. I hope that you wouldn't share that. Or maybe, I just want to let you know, my name is Jay Hawes, and I cheat on my taxes. (laughs) Or, my name is Jay Hawes, and I root for the Raiders. Right? Like the absolute worst thing that you can find out about somebody, right, is that, um, or the Steelers. Why don't we do this? Because we want people to think well of us. When we're meeting people for the very first time, we kind of put on this facade, we kind of put on this front that we want them to see maybe a projection not of who we are, but who we desire to be. Well, the problem is this, is that every single one of us here in this room, me, you, us, Each of us shares a dirty little secret. That all of us together share this one thing. And what I find is, most of us, that we are not proud of this thing. And this thing can be found in Ephesians chapter 2. If you would, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. We're going to be reading the first ten verses out of Ephesians chapter 2. 
And right now we're going to be looking at the first three verses of it. And this is really that thing that each of us shares in common. Verse number one of Ephesians 2, this letter that Paul wrote to the church, it says, as for you, meaning you, not just the audience at that time, but you and me and us, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Go ahead, Rob. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of this wrath. See, when we look at this passage right here, this is not a feel-good passage. This passage right here in these first three verses, this little dirty secret about each of us, it isn't a mirror of the things that we want to see, to know about ourselves, but it's really what we need to see about ourselves, that we need to be willing to accept that these first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 apply to every single one of us here in this room. And not only here in this room, but here in our city, in our state, in our country, and in our world. These first three verses apply to everybody. Because we need to know that these three verses, the ways in which that we live a life or have lived a life of sin... The smell of this, the grotesqueness of this, that it is a smell in God's nostrils that just makes him sick. Because without Jesus, every single one of us is spiritually dead. There's no way around this reality. Apart from him, all people are spiritually dead. As dead as dead gets. Now we live in a culture that is fascinated with death. That is fascinated um, also, not only now, but for really like the last 20, 30 years in our culture, that we have been fascinated with death, that we've been fascinated also with zombies. And if you think about it, going back to the 80s, we had Michael Jackson's thriller, how many of you guys remember that? Okay. Chris, you can raise your hand. You don't have to just nod, okay? Then we have video games that highlight this, that talk about it. We also have TV shows, The Walking Dead or Fear of the Walking Dead. We also have movies, Evil Dead, Shaun of the Dead, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, Zombieland, Santa Clarita Diet there on uh, Netflix is where that's at. Now, this next one, this is a real movie, okay? Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies. World War Z and I Am Legend. We, there are so many more. I asked this question on Facebook this last week and had people kind of help me out with some of these um, movies that depict either zombies or depict death. And it was, it just, it was amazing just to watch my feed just fill up of all of these things as a society that we are fascinated with about this topic. Well, there is also a passage in the Bible that talks about zombies too, 
And I don't know if you know about that, but go with me back to the Old Testament to Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel chapter 37. We're going to be looking at the first couple of verses there in this chapter in Ezekiel 37. And just watch the way in this passage that we see death depicted, that we see dead depicted. Ezekiel chapter 37, we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 here. And it says, The hand of the Lord was on me. This is Ezekiel. And he brought me out of the Spirit, uh, brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. In these first eight verses here of Ezekiel chapter 37, this is our story. This is who we are as human beings, apart from or separate from Jesus. We aren't just swimming around in the ocean waiting for God to throw us a life preserver, but rather we are stone cold dead sitting at the bottom of the ocean with no chance, no help whatsoever. We can never save ourselves. This is who we are apart from him. But when we continue in looking at the Apostles' Creed, it encourages us to confess together this life-giving truth that Jesus rose from the dead. And we believe as his followers that on the third day after his suffering, after his death and his burial, that Jesus rose from the grave, conquering death. And if Jesus can come back from the dead, then that means that dead isn't the end of the story. Look with me at your sermon notes that you have inside of your bulletin. And looking at this first point, it says the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus shows us that the impossible is true. The resurrection of Jesus shows us that the impossible is true. Look with me as we continue in Ezekiel 37 to watch what happens to those bodies that had no breath in them. They they were at this point standing. They had skin, they had tendons, they had ligaments, they had muscles, they had bones, but they were just standing there and there was nothing inside of them, nothing that animated them, nothing that moved them forward because the breath of God hadn't entered into them and given them life. Verse number nine says this, 
Then he, meaning God, said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. He is speaking to you. I will bring you back from this land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. God in his infinite power, he makes the impossible happen. He gave those bones new life. And he does the same for us as well. Go back to Ephesians. We already saw what our reality looked like there in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. This is who we are apart from Christ. But the same Spirit, the same God in the Old Testament is the same God and the same Spirit in the New Testament is the same God and the same Spirit that is within us today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Look with me at verse number four of Ephesians 2. It says, but. There's this transition here. I know who you were before apart from me, but because of his great love for us, because of his great love for you and for me and for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with us in Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. You cannot do it on your own through faith. Um, It is not on your own. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. All of the gospel accounts of the resurrection, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John earlier, My daughter Brooklyn read Luke chapter 24, the first 12 verses, depicting what happened there on that very first Easter Sunday. All of them really start the same way, which is, on the day after the Sabbath, there was a group of women who had been following Jesus, who were his disciples. They went to the tomb in order to be able to prepare the body. However, when they arrived at the tomb... There was a stone that had been placed in front of it, and the stone had been rolled back. When in the tomb, when they looked at it, there was nobody within the tomb. It was empty. 
Now you think about it, when these women, they went to the tomb, they were expecting to find a body there at that moment. They were grieving, they were in sorrow, they were sad. They had just lost the person who was closest to them. And they went there in their grief in order to be able to care for Jesus' body. But when they arrive, they find the stone rolled back and the tomb was empty. And when we think about this, we have the benefit of being able to step back and to know that Jesus is alive, that he came back from the dead. But in that moment, they didn't know that. And in fact, when they saw this empty tomb, they were scared. They were afraid. They were filled with great fear. And so there were angels there at that tomb, and the angels began to calm the women down. And it says in Luke chapter 24, in verse number 5, In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men, these angels, they said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He, Jesus, is not here. He has risen. These angels, they give the women hope. They let them know that there is no reason for you to be afraid. The impossible has happened. What Jesus said was going to happen has come true. And he shared that with these women. And so what do the women do? They run back to the other disciples and they return to them and they say, you're not going to believe what has happened. We went to the tomb and the stone was rolled back and Jesus wasn't there There's the angels, they talked to us and they said that Jesus has risen the exact same way that Jesus said that this was going to happen, that he was going to be coming back, that the life that he was now experiencing is the same life that he wants to give to us. It's real, it's here, it has happened. And so Peter, one of the 12 disciples, he's, he's one that I usually identify with the most. The reason why is when I think about the story of Peter, there's a couple different things that I identify with. Number one, Peter had a big mouth. He usually didn't think before he spoke. And so when there was something that hit his mind, immediately he would say it. You could say that he was a verbal processor. I think that might be like a little bit easier way of kind of smoothing that out for Peter. But also, Peter had great faith. Because there was that moment, if you remember back in the Gospels, in which Jesus was walking to the disciples on the water. The disciples were scared to death. They were inside of the boat. And which disciple jumped out of the boat? It was Peter. And in his impetuousness, he jumps out of the boat and he begins to walk towards Jesus. See, there are good things about speaking and moving quickly, being decisive in that moment. Not always, but there are. And so what does Peter do when he hears this news from these women, these women that had been there, been there, that they had experienced this, that they had seen this? And so what he does is he gets up and he runs to the tomb. Now in Luke's gospel, it just says that Peter is the one who ran back. In John's gospel, who was another one of the disciples, it says that Peter and John went back to the tomb. One of the things that I love about John's account of this is it says that Peter and John went back to the tomb, but John says that I beat Peter there. It's like this little humble brag that he has there. He goes, listen, I I just want you to know that we both ran back there, um, but I won. I beat Peter. But what does Peter do? As soon as he arrives there, Peter's the one that charges in to the tomb. 
And we see here in verse number 12 of Luke 24 what he saw. Peter, however, he got up and he ran to the tomb, bending over. In, when he was in the tomb, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. See, Peter was still confused about what was going on. He still wanted to know. He still didn't quite get it about what was happening in that moment. The disciples, the females had told them, these women had told them, this this is what had happened, that Jesus is alive, that he has come back. And Peter, he goes to the tomb and he sees the fact that Jesus is not there and he's still questioning it. He's still wondering what is going on. You know, this is a point of identification for us. This is something that we can identify with as Christians today. Because right now we are very much like Peter in that moment. We read here in the scriptures that Jesus is risen, but if you went back to the tomb today, you're not going to find Jesus there. In fact, you're not going to see his body anywhere. Like Peter in that moment, we can't see him. But we know that he is alive. We know that Jesus has risen from the dead. When we look at this account here in Luke 24, and we see that Peter is the one who was wondering what has happened, later on after this, Jesus appears in the flesh, in reality, to the disciples, and Peter comes face to face with the reality that Jesus has risen from the dead. Later on in the New Testament, we see Peter writing two books, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And I want you to see in the account of Luke, Peter is wondering what happened. But look at the transformation that happens in Peter's mind, in his life, in his spirit, when he begins to understand what does it mean, the fact that Jesus has made him alive. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, Though you have not seen him, meaning Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When we confess that Jesus rose again, we identify with the disciples on that very first Easter morning. Which brings us to the second point, which is it is necessary for us to affirm the death of Jesus in order to then celebrate the resurrection. We cannot celebrate the resurrection if Jesus truly did not die. We have to accept the first in order to be able to believe the second. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I receive I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. This is the first thing that we have to confess. But then look in verse 4. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus was dead. 
It wasn't a near-death experience that Jesus recovered from, but rather it was an actual death that he came back alive from. Why does this matter? Why is it important that we confess not only did he die, but also he rose again? If Jesus didn't die, then there is nothing for us to celebrate today. There would be no resurrection. There would be no giving of life from God through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. He did die. He also rose again. He is alive today. And so what we need to understand that because of this truth, the confession that Jesus has risen from the dead, it changes lives. Not only 2,000 years ago, but it changes the world as well. It changes us today. When we look back at these disciples, the ones who were the closest followers of Jesus, their lives were transformed by the incredible news that Jesus had come back from the grave. Some of Jesus' closest followers were fishermen. They were untrained. They were unschooled. They had never received formal education in how to preach. They had never studied these ancient languages. They had never learned how to put together a sermon. They had never sat through seminary. And yet we find that these fishermen became some of the greatest preachers. It says, in fact, that one of the fishermen, Peter, in one day at Pentecost, when he was sharing the good news, the gospel, that Jesus is alive, 3,000 people were added to their number that day. I would say that that's a pretty good preacher. But not only the fact that fishermen, that they were changed, but also tax collectors, those who were in the employ of the hated Roman Empire at that time, that they became witnesses of who Jesus was. They began to share with other people the things that they had seen, the things that they had heard, and they began to tell other people about the fact that the resurrection of Jesus changes lives. And it also changes the world. It's amazing to think that this news about Jesus' resurrection, that it traveled so quickly back then, in order to be able to have such influence over the known world at that time. You see, about 300 years after Jesus' resurrection, his disciples had been sharing the good news about him becoming and coming back from the dead and being alive. 300 years after that, that hated Roman Empire, the empire that was in charge of the entire world, the one who stand against, stood against everything that Christianity believes that we hold true. 300 years later, the emperor at that time declared Christianity to be the official religion of the empire. I'd say that's a pretty drastic reversal. In 300 years, how quickly the good news of Jesus' life, how it changed the world. Before social media, before mass communication, before the internet, a message about the resurrection of Jesus, it not only persisted, but it was accepted and eventually it transformed the world. I want you to think about that for just a second. 
with the means of communication that we have today. How quickly could word spread about the amazing, the transforming power about the resurrection of Jesus? How quickly could that spread throughout our world right now? What could happen in 300 years? What could happen in 30 years? What could happen in three years? What could happen in three months? I mean, we look at how fast things change in our culture. Now, when I think about that, about this empire that was so vast, that was so huge, that within a short period of time, that they declared Christianity the belief that Jesus is alive and that he wants to give us life if we believe then we receive it, that they declared that to be their official language. Now, I want you to think about this for just a second. What if within a short period of time, what if the government of China came out and said that we want everybody to know that for our one billion plus people that Christianity is the official religion of China? Think about that. Would that be crazy? Would that be pretty much absolutely insane? Because you look at where they are right now, they stand against, in fact, that is one of the areas in the world where Christians are being persecuted more than others, that people are having to go underground, that they are having to hide even just a small snippet of Scripture. And to think in a short period of time, the news that Jesus is alive and that he wants to give us life to see how quickly that that can transform the world. If we are taking this good news and we are sharing it and we are spreading it to others. But you have to do your part. You have to be willing to say this good news that I have received, that I have believed, that I have accepted this life that he wants to give to me, that I have been restored in my relationship with God, that Ephesians chapter 2, 1 and 3, that they no longer define me, but 4 through 10, that is who I am now. I have been made alive, that this life that he wants to give me, this full life, this abundant life, this eternal life, it starts now. And I will be able to be with him for all of eternity. Think about what that would do if you not only kept that news to yourself, but you began to tell everybody that you came into contact with about that. Well, Pastor, you don't, you don't understand. Um, if I share that with people, um, they might get offended. They might get upset. Um, if I even talk to somebody about church or I talk to somebody about Jesus, then man, maybe they won't talk to me anymore. The greatest thing that you can do for somebody else is that you can tell them the good news of Jesus. That is the ultimate act of love that you can do for somebody who does not know that good news. The gospel is offensive. The good news of Jesus is offensive. It stands against everything that the world believes. But we have that news, that we have that life. Why would you not want your loved ones and your neighbors to have that same life? And if you have to offend some people along the way to do it, do it. Think about that. If somebody had come to you 
And eventually, at some point, if you have become a Christian, at some point, somebody had shared that good news with you. What if they had held back? What if they had not told you? What if you were not a believer today because that person said, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to share with them the truth of the way in which that they are living their life, that they are dead. But Jesus wants to spiritually make them alive. What if somebody had not done that for you? Where would you be today? I am grateful for the people who spoke truth into my life in love. That they confronted me, that they approached me, and they said that there is a better way for you to be living your life. And I'm grateful for those people who took that opportunity to offend me. The resurrection of Jesus, the truth of the confession that on the third day that he rose from the dead, it has provided comfort to people throughout the ages. There's a story about Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He's a writer back in the mid-19th century. How many of you are familiar with him, or at least you've heard his name? Okay. During the mid-1860s, Longfellow lost his wife in a tragic death, that she was severely burned, and eventually, because of the severity of it, she succumbed. His son, at that point, then had joined, shortly after that, he had joined into the Civil War, that he had joined the army, and in that time, he was severely wounded, in fact, that they thought that he was going to be paralyzed for the rest of his life. And so Longfellow had heard all of these things. He had accepted all of these truths. And if I think about that about my wife and I think about that of one of my children, how much that that would be weighing upon me. But on Christmas Day in 1863, Longfellow was walking in the city and he heard bells ringing. He heard these Christmas bells ringing, and it was at that moment on Christmas Day that he wrote the poem, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And it speaks to peace on earth, that there is good news, that there is joy in this world. If somebody who has experienced that level of tragedy in their lives, and they can still speak to the fact that the thing that Jesus has done for us, that it can bring us hope, that it can bring us joy, that it can do the same thing for us as well. In the midst of suffering, because we have all suffered at some point, some of you are suffering right now, some of you will be suffering in the future. You will be. But it's in the midst of this suffering that we confess a truth that brings hope. God is the one who initiated this relationship with us. And Jesus was this path to making us alive. At one point, our sins, they separated us from God. But God pursued us. He recreated us. He gave us a new family the church, your brothers and your sisters that you're sitting next to right now. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is how God chooses to bring life to those who are spiritually dead. 
that at one point, as Ephesians 2 confesses, that we were dead in our sin, but God has made us alive in Jesus Christ. And that's what he wants to do for you today. That life that he gave to the disciples, that life that he revealed to them 2,000 years ago is the same life that he wants to offer to you today. Once you were dead in sin, and you might be living there right now, trying to do this life on your own, and saying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, and I have failed, I have failed, I have failed, that there is no peace within me in my life, that I desire that, to have something to just to hold on to, some truth, some hope, because it seems like everything in my world is crashing down around me. Jesus wants to give you this abundant, this full, this complete life. He wants to completely transform you. He wants you to be born again into this life that is perfect, this life that is complete, this life that is full of joy. Maybe at one point that you had made that confession, but at some point you have fallen away from that. That for some reason you have gotten to the point where maybe you no longer believe that or you begin to doubt it. Doubt is not a bad thing unless it leads you back to God in order to be able to search out those answers. I want to let you know this morning that no matter where you are at on that spectrum, that God wants to give you life through his son Jesus. That this morning, that Jesus is alive. In a minute, we're going to sing uh, one of my favorite songs and one of my favorite hymns that we sing normally on Easter morning, and it's entitled, He Lives. I've shared this with you before, that when I was growing up in the Church of the Nazarene, my grandfather, he led worship, uh, he led music worship at our church, not because of the fact that he had the best voice, but because he had the loudest voice. And I remember on Easter morning, my grandfather just belting this song out, this truth, that he lives. So if you would, go ahead and please stand. Our musicians are going to come forward. And they're going to lead us in this song. But I would ask, as we are going through this song, as we are singing it together, that you would understand, that you would hear, that you would listen to its truths. That maybe you have sang this song so many times in your life. My prayer is that you would listen to these words in a new and in a fresh way today. Let's sing this hymn together. I serve a risen Savior. <clears throat> I know that he is living, whatever men may say. See? And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to
loving care And though my heart grows weary I never will despair I know that he is leading Through all the stormy blasts The day of his appearing Will come at last He lives, he lives Jesus lives today He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Rejoice, rejoice, O Christian. And sing eternal hallelujahs to Jesus Christ the King, the hope of all who seek Him, help of all who find. None others is so loving, so good and kind. He lives, He lives, He walks with me talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, vision to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. 419. I was once a sinner, but I came, pardoned to receive from my Lord. This was freely given, and I found that he always kept his word. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine, oh yes, it's mine. And the white-robed angels sing the story. sins forgiven I am bound for heaven never more to roam in the book just risen say by grace oh the joy that came to my soul now I am forgiven and I know by the blood I am made whole there's a new name sins for God. 
us this morning. Next week, we'll be looking at the book of Acts, where we will see how Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection from the dead. I hope to see you there. You are dismissed. Have a great week.